which, I mean, we could sing it now as well. He's just very zealous to sing Psalm 16, so, which is good. All right, well, we are in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 today, and we'll read verses 14 to 18, but our focus will be verses 14 and 15 today. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 14. And there the word of Christ says this. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, praying and asking for you to teach us. Lord, we know that, as we read earlier from Psalm 49, that Man without knowledge is like a beast that perishes. Lord, we need knowledge. We need true knowledge. Lord, not the knowledge of this world, which is built upon lies and deceit, but the true knowledge that comes from you that is found in your word. And Lord, above all, we need the knowledge that comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that today you teach us. Lord, teach us concerning his person and his work, that we might see that our salvation, Lord, is resting upon a sure and a certain foundation, that we who have put our hope in Christ, Lord, that we will not be put to shame, but rather we have a confidence, Lord, a confidence that this world does not know, Lord, that gives us the ability, Lord, to overcome the fear of death. So, Lord, teach us today from your holy word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, we've been teaching through this passage where the apostle is asserting the necessity of the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? He had says that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. This is when he took on human flesh. He was subjected to all the weaknesses, the infirmities associated with our humanity. He was made like us in every way except without sin. And this was necessary in order to redeem, to rescue fallen mankind, right? The children that had been given to God are given to Christ by God before the creation of the world, these children are not innocent, guiltless, sinless children. But the children given to him are dead in their trespasses and sins. They lie under the power of the evil one, and they are held captive to sin and death. So if he is going to take these sons to glory, then it is necessary for him to come take on a nature like theirs, die on the cross for their sins, and be raised for their justification. It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be delivered from our sin and be brought to eternal glory with God. And this is the end of our salvation. Our salvation finds its consummation or its completion in our glorification. Yet in our natural state, we're not fit for that. Right? In our natural state, we're not fit to enter into the glorious kingdom of God. We're not able to enter into a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. 
we are not able to dwell in a city where no unclean thing is found. Because in our natural state, we are unclean. We are sinful. Even in our redemption, before our glorification, we still have the pollution of sin amongst us because of the presence of the flesh. So all of us would be excluded from the kingdom of God because our sins make such a great separation between us and our God. We cannot be in his presence because his eyes are too pure to even behold evil. Wicked men cannot exist, cannot dwell with the God of righteousness. So if we are going to be taken to glory and be with God, then we must be sanctified. We must be purified from all sin. This corrupt, carnal, fleshly nature of sin must be set aside and a new nature, a spiritual nature, a glorious, heavenly, holy nature must be taken up in its place. We must die to sin and live to righteousness. We must be sanctified by the author of our salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this to happen, it necessitates his taking on human flesh. He had to have a nature like ours. He had to become a man so that he might die on the cross for sinful men. This is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins and purified from all unrighteousness. So there is a union of nature between Christ and his children. And the apostle will show in our passage today the necessity and the end of such a union. Namely, the destruction of the devil and our deliverance from the fear of death. Neither of these could be accomplished without Jesus taking on a human nature and dying on the cross for our sins. So the death of Christ is the pivotal act in our salvation. Without his death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without his death, there is no eternal life. Without his death, we cannot be taken to glory. And how can he die if he doesn't have a body, if he does not have a human nature? Only one who is a man can die in the place of sinful man. And this is why his humanity was necessary. It is an essential doctrine of our faith. If we do not believe in the full humanity of Jesus Christ, then we cannot be saved. We must believe in the true person of Christ in order to benefit from his work. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin in verses 14 today. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Here he begins by explaining why it was necessary for Jesus to take on a human nature, to have both a human soul and a human body like ours. And he tells us in the first phrase, since the children share in flesh and blood. The children that he has come to redeem, they have flesh and blood. The children that Christ has come to redeem are sinful men. This is the nature that we have as mankind. Now, in our created state, in our original state, we had innocence, or Adam had innocence. It was declared by God that man was very good with the rest of God's creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In our original state, we were declared by God to be very good. 
but we're not in our original state anymore. And when God the Father gave us to Jesus Christ, He knew what kind of men we would be. He knew what He was giving to Him. He did not give to Christ good men. He did not give to Him men who were already righteous. He did not give to Him men who were already perfect, who were sinless men, who were innocent men. The children given to Jesus by the Father are sinful men. Men who by nature are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. In our natural state, we are fallen, sinful, corrupt mankind. Therefore, it was necessary for redemption to take place. We must be purified and sanctified from our sin in order to be with God in glory for all eternity. Here, the children are the elect. They are the ones who have been given to Jesus by the Father. These are the sons who are being brought to glory that he mentioned in verse 10. They are the ones in verse 11 who are being sanctified, and they are the ones who are called his brothers in verse 12. These are the ones that Jesus has come to redeem, to redeem from their sin so that they might be with him in heaven for all eternity. The only way that we could be with God is by the removal of our sins and our being made righteous in his sight. Only a perfected humanity can dwell with God, and Jesus is the source of this. He comes to accomplish this on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. It says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the will of God, we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Right? We have flesh and blood. We have bodies. We are physical. Our nature consists of both a human body and a human soul. Both our soul and our body need to be redeemed. Both the inner man and the outer man must be redeemed. Because the children share in flesh and blood. This is what he means by that. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since this is who we are, then the result is he himself likewise partook of the same. Because the children are flesh and blood, then he, the author of their salvation, also likewise, he partook of the same. Before the incarnation, he had a divine nature. At the incarnation, he, the Son of God, took on a human nature. He did not cease to be the Son of God. He did not lose his divine nature, his divinity, when he assumed a human nature. He remained every bit the Son of God as he had for all eternity. But at the incarnation, he also took on a human nature. He took on human flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. So he became what he was not before. Before he was not a man, at the incarnation, he became a man so that in the one person, Jesus Christ, existed full deity and full humanity in the one person, Jesus Christ. He was both fully God and fully man, and both were necessary in order to accomplish our salvation. Notice Romans chapter 1. 
Romans chapter 1, at the beginning of the book of Romans, which is a book dedicated to explaining the doctrine of salvation, he speaks of the person of Christ. Romans 1, 1 to 4. And he asserts both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. It says Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's his human nature. And who was declared the son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his divine nature. Both according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power. He had both a divine and a human nature. And both are necessary to accomplish salvation. Also, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 also asserts both of these realities. Revelation 1, 12 to 18. Revelation 1, verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So there, when he sees him, he says he's like a son of man. But then when he describes him, he's describing him according to his divinity, according to his divine nature, because both of these are true. And we must believe in both. We must believe in both the divinity and also the humanity of Christ. It says such in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. 1 John 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. There, the Apostle John says that if anyone denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he had a human nature, that he had a human body, then that person is not of the Spirit of God, but rather is of the Spirit of Antichrist, that he is of the devil. So he had a human body necessary for our salvation because the children share in flesh and blood, then he partook of the same things. Now, the question is, why? Why was this necessary? Why did Jesus partake of a human nature like ours? 
for whose benefit? For his benefit or for our benefit? Well, it was for us, right? For our sakes, because of the great love that he had for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God the Father gave him, gave him as a man to die on the cross for our sins, all because of the great love that God has for us. God the Father prepared a body for His Son so that His Son might offer His life as a sacrifice for us, for His children. And all of this was motivated by God's great love for us because of the love that God has for His people. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, 1 John 4, 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is manifested to us by sending His Son into the world that we might live through Him. And how do we live through His Son? but through his death. He died on the cross for our sins. We must understand this. The first and principal end of the Lord Jesus Christ assuming a human nature was so that he might suffer and die for us. Jesus did not need a human nature in order to have glory because he already had glory. He had glory with the Father before the world was created. He says in John 17 verse 5, that he wants God to glorify him with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus did not need a human nature in order to rule and reign as a king, for he is already the king eternal, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, the king of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. However, in order to die on the cross for us, he had to have a human nature. In order to take many sons to glory, he had to have a nature like ours. He had to become a man so that he might die on the cross for sinful men. And we remember in John 6:15, when the people came and they sought to seize Christ and by force take him and make him king, what did he do? He hid himself from them. He withdrew from them so that they could not do it. But when they came to seize him and by force drag him away to the cross to be crucified, he did not hide himself. But he willingly went to the cross because that was the very reason for which he came, was to die on the cross for our sins. He says such in John 18, 11, to Peter. When Peter drew out his sword and sought to defend Christ to keep him from being taken away to the place of crucifixion, Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Do you not understand, Peter, he says? I must drink of this cup for you, for your salvation, for your forgiveness of sins. 
so that where I am, there you may also be. The children share in flesh and blood, therefore he partook of the same, of the same nature as the children. Now, why? Why flesh and blood? Notice what he says next in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. That through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God has rendered powerless the devil who had the power of death. Right In our natural state, the children of God, the sons of God, the brethren, they are under the power of the devil. The devil exercises authority, a tyranny, over sinful man through death. Now, he does not exercise this outside of the will of God. He is not some rogue agent who is operating outside of the authority of God. The devil is a subordinate to God, but as a subordinate to God, he is called the ruler of this world. He is the God of this fallen world, of this sinful world. And he does exercise authority and power over sinful men. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this authority even extends to the elect in their natural state. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Actually, we'll read 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There, Satan is called the God of this world. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving. He blinds them through deception, through his lies, so that they do not see the glory of Christ, though that they will not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, Ephesians 2 Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Satan has this type of tyranny, rulership over sinful men. And in 1 John 5, 19, it says, we are from God and we know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The world lies under the power of the devil. The devil exercises this authority over mankind through death. The devil wants to put men to death. He loves misery. He loves chaos. He loves confusion. He loves lies, condemnation, guilt, shame. He seeks to impose these upon men. We know from John chapter 8, verse 44, that Jesus says that he has been a murderer from the beginning. Satan has sought to put men to death, to murder men from the very, very beginning. Was he not the source, the instigator of the death of our first parents, of Adam and Eve in the garden? 
In a sense, he was the one who murdered, who put to death Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because he is the one that tempted them to commit sin and to transgress the commandment of God. Also, we know from 1 John that Cain was of the devil. Cain was of the devil. And what did Cain do to his brother Abel in the very beginning? He murdered him. Satan was the one who inspired Cain to murder his brother Abel. All of this took place there in the beginning. Romans chapter 5, Romans 5 verses 12 and 14. There it says, Romans 5 verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. There, sin and death go hand in hand. Sin brings forth death. Death is the result, it is the penalty for sin. Sin and death entered into the world through one man, right? Through Adam, our father. Sin and death spread to all men because all men were represented in Adam in the garden so that when Adam sinned, who else sinned with him? We all sinned with him. And when he died, we all died with Adam. And that happened in the garden. This is why death spread to all men because all sinned, right? Every single person born from Adam until the end of the world, enters into the world with a sin nature and enters into the world with the penalty of death upon them. And if everything plays out, what's going to happen to each and every one of us? We all are going to die eventually. And who is the one who instigated this? Who instigated this fall? Who was the deceiver? Who was the tempter who brought all of this about? It was the devil. The devil was the instigator who, through deception, tempted Adam and Eve to sin so that they would die and all of their posterity would die as well. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. It says in 1 Timothy 2.14, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The woman was deceived by Satan, And she fell into transgression, and then she gave to her husband, and her husband also fell into transgression with her, with the result that the whole world now lies under the power of sin and death. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Sin, death, and Satan. These three always go together. They are an unholy trinity, right? An unholy trinity, a axis of evil that enslaves mankind. And we are utterly helpless to deliver ourselves from their power. What man can overcome any of his own sins? What man has the power to overcome death? What man has the power to overcome Satan? None of us can overcome them. If Adam could not overcome Satan in the Garden of Eden, in his original state, without a sin nature, how are any of us going to overcome Satan when we have a nature that is inclined and predisposed to sin? A nature of flesh. 
We are helpless against sin, death, and Satan. We cannot deliver ourselves. So how is the power of the devil broken? How is the devil rendered powerless? He says, through death. Through death. This is the irony of it. His power is in death, and yet it is a death that makes him powerless. His power is taken away through death. But whose death? Not our death, but through his death. Through the death of Jesus Christ. Through his death, the devil is rendered powerless over the children of God. The power of sin and death are destroyed through the death of Jesus Christ once and for all so that he no longer has power over the children of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Colossians 2, verses 8 to 15. It says there, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Notice there, he's teaching the deity and the humanity of Christ. All of it there in Christ. And in him you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Christ has triumphed over the devil, and he has made a public display of this. And that public display was seen when he rose from the dead. This made it very clear. It declared that Satan had no power, no authority over Jesus Christ. And it is through his death that the certificate of death that we have that is hostile to us because of our many sins against God, it is canceled away as well when it was nailed to his cross. This is what Christ has done for us. He took on our flesh and blood He died on the cross so that we might be set free from sin and death and Satan. So that the power of the devil that he exerted over you and me might be rendered powerless, that we might be set free from his tyranny. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And in John 8, 36, it says, if the Son makes you free, you will be free Indeed, the promise we have in Jesus Christ is that death no longer has power over us. Its authority, its grip upon us has been completely abolished by the work of Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection. Yes, it may exert a temporary influence on us in that 
we will all die one day, but it will not have an eternal influence on us. It will be overcome on the day of Christ. Death is rendered powerless by his death and by his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. Romans 6, verse 8 says, Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Death has no mastery over Jesus Christ. It did temporarily, according to the will of God, but this was for our benefit. But now he's raised from the dead and he can never die again. Even as a man, the body that he has is an immortal body. It will never die again. And just as it was with Christ, so also it will be with his children, with his people. Yes, death may have a temporary influence on us, but ultimately we will overcome just as Jesus Christ did. We will rise again with an immortal body and that body will no longer be subject to death anymore, to sin, death, or Satan. He came to destroy the devil, to crush the head of the serpent, as was foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God gave the first proclamation of the gospel, of the gospel of salvation, he said that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Satan, yes, you will bruise his heel. You will do some temporary damage to him. But when you do that to him, what is he going to do to you? He's going to give you a fatal blow to your head. He's going to crush your head. And this is what wicked men, the demons, and the devil, they all fail to understand. Because they are ignorant of the work of God. They do not understand the ways of God. They thought they were destroying Christ when they put him to death on the cross. Yet God was in and by him destroying them, destroying their power. So they were complicit in their own destruction. While the heel of Christ was being bruised, the head of the serpent was being crushed. All because they don't understand the mystery of salvation. They don't have spiritual eyes. They cannot understand these things. That God has the power to bring light out of darkness. God has the power to bring healing through his stripes. That God has the power to bring life out of death. Death, which in us produces dreadful fear, yet his death, his grave, becomes the very basis for our hope of being delivered from death. The death of Christ through the wise and righteous counsel of God is our source of victory. It is what conquers all of our enemies, and it is what leads to life eternal. This is the wisdom of God. Wisdom that completely and utterly confounds all of the wisdom of this world. This is why the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And this is what God is doing in us. He is through the death of Jesus Christ destroying the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the devil. 
And he accomplishes this in us in stages. At our salvation, we are delivered from sin, death, and the devil. This begins when we are justified by faith in his son. This salvation is advanced in our life from conversion until our death through our sanctification, where the power of sin is gradually, great, more greatly uh, lessened in our life so that we live more and more godly lives. And then it is ultimately brought to its completion at the second coming of Christ when we see him face to face and then we will be glorified and we will be like him. And then the saying will be true. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It has already happened in the person of Christ. He is the first fruits, but it will also happen to all of us as well. We who believe in him, death will be swallowed up for us too. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 says, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is a result of the devil being rendered powerless over us. His being disarmed results in our being set free from the fear of death. In our natural state, we have fear of death. Men by nature know that death is not a part of this natural world. Though it happens to all men, death is not natural to mankind, but it is a penalty. It is a moral evil that has come upon us because of sin. God did not create us like that, but we fell into that because of sin. And death is a constant reminder to this world that we are under the condemnation of sin, that there is a life to come, that there is a day of judgment, and that we will be condemned eternally because of our many sins against God. And this is why people have fear of death, because they know what's waiting for them on the other side of it, but they don't want to do anything about it. Romans chapter 1, Romans 1 verse 32 tells us, here when he gives a list of many sins that sinful men commit against God, he says in Romans 1 32, He says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sinful men know by nature, they know implicitly, that those who do such things, they deserve to die. Yet what do they do? They keep practicing in them. They keep doing them and they give approval to other people who practice these things. But they know, deep down inside, they know that they deserve to die for committing these sins against God. Also, Romans 2, verse 12. Romans 2, 12. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, uh, these not having the law are a law in themselves, 
in that they show that the word of the law written in their hearts, in their conscience, bearing witness, in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. There, their conscience bears witness. Their thoughts, he says, even accuse them. Their thoughts accuse them because they know the righteous ordinances of God that those who do such things deserve to die. And they themselves are doing such things. And so their conscience is tormented by the knowledge of their sin. Those who sin deserve a twofold death. They deserve to die physically in this world, and then they deserve to die eternally in the world to come. And the lake of fire in the book of Revelation is called the second death. It is the second death where wicked men receive the just rewards for the sins that they've committed against God. They receive the wrath of God. And this is why the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. It says in Proverbs 28.1, why is he fleeing when no one is pursuing? It's because he has a guilty conscience. His conscience is tormented by the knowledge of his sins against God. He knows instinctively that he is a sinner. He knows instinctively that those who do such things deserve to die and that he himself will indeed die because of his sin. As it says in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. And the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 48.22, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace because of the reality of sin and death. The penalty of sin is death, and men live in fear of death all the days of their life. Lifelong fear of death. Slavery of the fear of death. Everyone fears death in one way or the other. What will happen after death? Aren't people asking this question all the time? Where will I go when I die? How can I know for certain what will happen to me when I die? Isn't this on the minds of men? Don't they seek in vain to answer this question? And why are they asking this question? It troubles their mind because they know that there's something after death. They know that something else is coming and they don't know the answer. And the reason they know this, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, is because God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Men know that there's more than this present life. They know that there is something that awaits after death. Something is coming. Now, of course, I do not mean that all men acknowledge this. Many want to live in ignorance. Many want to smother this truth with lies so that they're not bothered by the fear of death. This is what the atheist is doing. He's convincing himself that his existence is just physical, that he does not have an immortal soul, that there is no spiritual component, that it's just this present physical world and there's nothing else after this. There's not even a God. And this so he can live his life, he can commit his sins against God, and then die and convince himself that he'll just cease to exist and there's not going to be a day of judgment and there will not be payment for his sins. False religions, false Christianity, they seek to provide some futile solution to the fear of death, that there's a spiritual existence, 
that will be assumed into some heavenly reality or into some great spirit being uh, in the sky, right? That will go and will all make it to heaven in one way or another. This because everyone is seeking to overcome the fear of death. But there's only one way that a man can be set free from the fear of death. And what is the only way? Through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only through his death and resurrection can we have certain hope. Can we have unwavering conviction that we will be victorious over death. He conquered the grave for us so that we would not have to live in lifelong fear of death anymore. We were subject to slavery all of our lives through fear of death that the devil wielded over us through the knowledge and guilt of our sins. Christ has come to set us free. He defeated death for us so that we don't have to live in fear of it anymore, so that we might have certainty regarding the life to come. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And his kingdom is a kingdom of life, not a kingdom of death. Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of death, but we've been set free from that kingdom. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are no longer enslaved to sin, to death, or to Satan. We have no fear of death. We have peace with God. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were slaves to Satan. We were in the fear of death. We had no peace with God. But now that we have trusted in Christ, now we have been set free from these things, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is as Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. You are free from sin. You are free from condemnation. You are free from guilt. You are free from shame. You are free from Satan. And you are free from the fear of death. And that question, which haunts the minds of unbelievers, what happens when I die? Where do I go after, I de- after I'm dead? How can I know for certain where I will go after my death? Well, that doesn't bother us anymore because we know the answer. We have the answer. The Christian does not fear these things for his faith in Christ removes the fear of death. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It is our faith in Christ that gives us the ability to overcome the fear of death because now we're not in fear of it anymore because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with our Lord. And that's better by far, isn't it? Well, let's see. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice what the apostle says here. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. 
It says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say. And prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There, he doesn't say we are in dreadful fear, but he says twice, we're of good courage. We have courage because we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we prefer that, to be absent from the body, because this is what we want more than anything else, is to be with our Lord. So what does death do to us? Other than transfer us out of this present world of sin and misery and into the presence of the Lord. So what power does it have? Nothing at all. It actually, death, now becomes our slave, our servant, to do the will of God for our benefit, to take us out of this earthly tent and to bring us to the Lord. And then one day Christ will resurrect that body and reunite it with our immortal soul. Also, Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verses 21 to 26. says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can an unbeliever say that? Can a wicked man say to die is gain? No, because for the wicked man to die is loss, because he's going to go to hell for all eternity. But for the believer, for the righteous man, to die is a gain. It is a benefit. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions." Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Here, he's hard-pressed between these two options. Does he want to stay here in this life? or depart and be with Christ. Well, in terms of his own benefit, in terms of what is best for him, he says it's obvious. I would much rather depart and be with Christ because that is better by far. The only reason he wants to remain in this life is for the sake of the church because he knows his ministry will be a benefit and will be necessary for their sake to build them up in the faith so that they also will inherit eternal life. But... To be absent from the body is to go and to be present with the Lord. And that is better by far. This is only true for the believer. Amen. And this is the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. This is the peace that surpasses all understanding. 
to long for the day of death so that we might be with the Lord. The unbelieving world, they don't do this. They are in fear of death, but we are of good courage if we have put our hope in Christ. So this is why it is necessary for Jesus to come to take on human flesh and to die on the cross for our sins so that he might deliver us and render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through slavery were in lifelong fear of death. And this is what he has done if we have put our hope in him. So let us then trust in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation. And he and he alone can set us free from all of our enemies and from what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, so grateful of the kindness that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Lord, how great you have manifested your love toward us by sending your Son to come and to take on human flesh. Lord, sending him to come and to die on the cross and to be raised for our justification. Lord, we see and we know that This is the only way that we could be redeemed, the only way that we could be delivered from the power of sin and death and Satan is only through the power of Christ. Lord, we were helpless. Lord, there was nothing that we could do. We were slaves. We were in bondage to these great enemies until someone stronger came who bound Satan, who conquered the grave, who overcame our sin, and who has set the captives free. Father, we thank you for doing this for us. Lord, we thank you for your great love that you have for your people that would lead you to send your own son to come and to suffer and die for their sake. Lord, we know now that it would be much better for us to be in your presence. Lord, to be absent from this body is to be present with our Lord. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to live in fear of death anymore. Lord, that we don't have to be tormented by the knowledge of our sins, but that we have such a great high priest over the household of God. Lord, that we have a Savior who has come, an author of salvation, who has laid down his life. And we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for being the author of salvation, Lord, for doing all of this for us. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to perfect our salvation. Lord, that you would advance it in our life. That we would, day by day, overcome sin. Lord, that we would overcome the devil and his temptations and lies through the power of your word. And that we would live faithful lives to you. Lord, as well, we long for and we pray that the day would come quickly. Lord, when you would come and take us to be with you, that you would come and deliver us, Lord, from the remnant of sin that remains and deliver us from death. Lord, and glorify us and take us to be with you. Lord, until that day, we pray that you would cause us to be of good courage, Lord, that we would not be burdened with the many sins of this world, but that we would live in light of who we are and of light of what we will be for all eternity. 
Lord, since Christ has died for us, since he has suffered on our behalf, then Lord, we pray as well that we would die to sin and that we would live for him and that we would also be willing to suffer for his sake. So Lord, again, we thank and praise you for your goodness, for your kindness to us. And Lord, help us to understand more and more the depth of your love, Lord, the greatness of your wisdom, Lord, seen in this salvation given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.